0: day at President Lincoln's cottage, we engage with visitors in conversation on difficult topics from grief to slavery to American identity. Visitors, young and old alike, come here from
1: next door and from around the globe. And occasionally we get asked a question on a tour that stops us in our tracks, one we wish we could spend a half hour answering. Some of these questions on their face seem innocent or simple, but on a second look, they contain a level of complexity that leaves us wanting to know more. Each episode, will investigate a single, real question a visitor asked us here.
0: At President Lincoln's Cottage, we're storytellers, historians, and truth-seekers. So we called on people whose expertise could speak to all the facets of these questions. I'm Callie Hawkins. And I'm Joan Cummins. This is q and a Come on down the rabbit hole with us. Let's take that half hour now. For this episode,
1: we're working on the question, what is the cottage worth? So during I See the President, one of our school programs for fourth and fifth graders, one of the students asked their guide how much the cottage was worth, in air quotes. After a giggle about young people's preoccupation with money, we discovered that this question is asked often though in slightly different ways, by visitors of all ages. So maybe the question wasn't about money at all. Maybe it was in part about money, but maybe there was something a little bit deeper. The first thing this question made me think of
0: was George Riggs, who had the cottage built, and what the house might be worth to him. I went digging around in our files here on site to see what I could find out about how much Riggs had spent to build the house, or maybe how much he made when he sold it to the government.
1: Just to clarify, Riggs, a wealthy Washington banker, had the cottage built in 1842 and he and his family used the house as a country estate until Riggs sold the property to the government in 1851, as the government was starting the retirement home for veterans that still occupies the site. The retirement home then invited the Lincolns to take up residence about a decade later. Because of his role in commissioning the house, Riggs shows up in the beginning
0: of all the reports I was able to find in our files. We have two historic landscape reports, one from 1985 and one from 2004. Both say that Riggs spent about $3,400 to buy the land he would build the cottage on and sold it later for about $57,500. The later report cites the earlier one, though, and the earlier report has citations but not specific footnotes, so I wanted to see if we could push further and get our hands on some actual primary sources for these numbers.
1: Knowing that George Washington University has some of the Riggs papers, we made an appointment to go downtown and comb through these huge old volumes of bank records. The books themselves are about three feet wide and enormous. After looking at them, let's just say that Riggs' account looks a little bit different than mine. Um, There was a lot of interesting stuff in there, but with the exception for an entry about some mantles, we didn't really find what we were looking for.
0: We also reached out to the DC Recorder of Deeds, the Duke University Archives, and the National Archives, all of which have some related papers. But it wasn't until I went to the Library of Congress that we found some success. Can I tell you about what I found? Please. Okay, so the Library of Congress has the original specs for the building of the cottage of the house itself. So I want to read you some pieces of those. One of the things that was super interesting to me about all of these records is none of them are on sizes of paper that we would consider standard now. So they're all bigger or smaller than eight and a half by 11. And when they're folded up, we fold a paper in half, maybe in thirds. But these papers are folded in half and then in
1: thirds. Oh, so they're like huh. six fold Was it to fit in any kind of envelope? I wonder. Or no, they all have the address written on the back. Oh, so that's how they were mailed. So that must have been a standard. Okay, yeah, that makes some sense. So
0: it was super interesting, just like because of it's a different kind of paper, right? Know? Right? Right? So this the specs are on this big sheet of paper, sort of. Two sides, front and back, two pieces of paper, and here's some of the things that they say. Uh, There's a lot of information about how big the house should be, how big the rooms on the first and second story should be, and then it says things like, "...all of the above brickwork to be done in the best manner, of the best merchantable brick, best Washington Lime, and of the best sand that can be procured in the vicinity of the building."
1: So Riggs wanted the best, best that had ever bested.
0: The best, best, best. Because it goes on, so it does all the brickwork and the stonework, and then it does all the carpentry. And so the carpentry includes the partitions for the folding doors to be finished in the best manner. Then we move on to the roof, and it says slating to be done in the best manner, and all of the best Susquehanna slate. The glass shall be best Washington cylinder glass, painting inside and out good three-coat work, plain color of the best materials. Wow. So just really all the way down some instructions that this should be the fanciest house it is possible to get. Right, which I thought was kind of incredible.
1: Yeah. That's super interesting. Did you come across anything that hinted at who was doing this work? Like we know where the that what the plans were based on. We know the the construction group. We know the architect. But, but who was actually physically creating this best, best, best work?
0: So I don't think the specs say that at all. My guess for this document is that it's something that Riggs and the builder wrote out together mm-hmm. to, like, hand to a foreman, essentially, okay. to be like, this is the deal that we're going for. Mm-hmm. But... I think it's one of those things where, like, Riggs was the rich, important person. So his papers are in there. Right. The people who did the building were not rich enough to have three foot bank ledgers in their life. Right. So they don't end up in the record. Yeah.
1: What did you find in terms of the sale? So there were
0: more of those big account books Mm. in the Library of Congress. And I was able to find let's count one, two, three, four, five, six different payments that Riggs labels as to the farm in Washington city. So that's this one as we, which I'm especially sure about because the first notation says parentheses corn rigs, which was right. his name for the property. And so the first entry says to farm in Washington city, corn rigs received on account of the sale thereof. And there, so December 13th, eighty five hundred dollars. January 31st, 11th, thirty first, three thousand dollars. February eleventh, thirty thousand three hundred and
1: twenty dollars and sixty-eight cents for some reason. Gosh, wonder wonder where they came into the to the big pile of money. That's interesting. Lump a balloon payment that was due. Perhaps. Right.
0: And then March eleventh, two hundred and ninety dollars and forty one cents. And then nothing happens in April, but in May we get Last payment of the purchase money, seven thousand eight hundred and eighty-eight dollars and ninety-one cents.
1: So my math is terrible. What does that equal?
0: It adds up to forty-seven thousand five hundred dollars.
1: Wow. Yeah, which is about
0: one point five million in 2019 dollars in twenty nineteen dollars today's money. Knowing that that last kind of calculation gets really inaccurate really fast. Right. But I thought it was just completely weird that it's in six payments and it's not even six regular installments. It's just like, here are some chunks of money that we can find sometimes.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's Congress, right? So you wonder it was tied up in some way or... Part of me was like, is
0: it that they physically need to transport gold bars somewhere? <laughs> Probably. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but the other thing is like... You can look in the register of congressional legislation and see where they appropriated the money to start the military asylum, the retirement home, and that money is about $100,000. So Riggs got almost half of it Hmm. for the land and the house.
1: Well, one of the things that I've always assumed was that George Riggs used enslaved labor to construct the house. That's why I was asking the question about, you know, did you find anything in there? We do know that he enslaved at least a few people. I mean, I think it changes some things for me.
0: But I think it, regardless of whether they were enslaved or not, it is interesting that we do not have a specific accounting of what part of the cost
1: was labor. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So so it was always a big, expensive house. And it does seem like Riggs made the most of his investment. I mean, he paid $3,400 for the land and sold it for 47000 But what about now? What is the cottage worth today in 2020? We started by talking to Kevin Sullivan, who works
0: with National Trust Insurance, the firm that did the insurance appraisal of the cottage most recently.
2: When, when you ask the question, what is the cottage worth? It's a very broad question, of course. And most people, when they ask the question, they're thinking more of market value, right? They're buying and selling houses that they might live in. And they're really thinking about the real estate industry. In our world, we aren't focused on market value. We focus on replacement value, You're focused on what would it cost to replace these items should they be lost in a fire or a a flood or whatever it could be. It's what would it cost to go about replacing it should you have the need to file an insurance claim. So, you know, when you look at the unique aspects of Lincoln's Cottage are really all historic structures. You know, Lincoln's Cottage in particular with glass panel doors and unique architectural features such as arch ceilings and marble uh, mantles and all the other aspects that really make a historic building unique, those factors have to be considered. And what it all boils down to is a replacement value. So what would it cost to replicate Lincoln's cottage? You obviously can't replicate the history, but you can, in most cases, replicate the materials, the architectural features, the craftsmanship that was used. And that's what we focus on. In the case of Lincoln's Cottage, we've gotten an appraisal done and it's inventoried all the materials. So the listener can't hear this, but I'm holding it within my hand, a uh, 20 page or 60 page report of all of the materials that are found within the building. And it boils down to a replacement value. Again, to answer your question from from my perspective of what it's worth of $9.9 million on a per square foot basis, It is roughly $736 a square foot.
0: I like the idea of measuring it by the square foot somehow. And you can hear from Kevin that all those quote unquote best materials that Riggs ordered in the specs are still making a difference in how much the house is worth.
1: The first two things that come to my mind uh, when we talk to Kevin are, wow, that's a huge number. And that I think it's really, really important to point out that the craftsmanship we assign so much value to might have been done by people who were denied right as citizens and considered less than a person. That's a lot to take in. Back to the number, $9.9 million is already more than double even the most expensive real estate listings we were able to find in DC.
0: Not to mention, counting up square feet didn't seem like it was quite the whole picture. Maybe this was naive of me, but I was kind of surprised to discover that the historical component, the emotional component maybe, had no bearing on the insurance valuation. I had one more question for Kevin. I understand that this sort of uh, emotional, historical, sentimental component does not factor into the insurance work. What are your personal thoughts on how a person goes about measuring that value?
2: Well, when you think about um, the the aspects of the historic you know, the the ties to Lincoln, I think of fine art, right? I think of a a painting by Picasso or whatever it might be. And when you have something that's unique like that, it tends to drive the, the value up. Well, when you look at the house museums of really prominent historical figures like Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson or the ones that, you know, our children learn about in history class, then we're talking about a different level of worth.
1: This was a great insight that rather than real estate, we needed to be thinking about objects that attained a similar level of uniqueness to the cottage. Things that are the only one of them there is. We went to talk to Alan Stypic of Second Story Books in D.C., who professionally appraises art and other historic objects. We were wondering...
0: How do you put a monetary value on the historic or sentimental aspects of an object?
3: The first step would be in the establishment of the physical property value, not taking into consideration the cost that you would increase it because, like this being a a residence that um, Lincoln lived in, it all depends on the provenance value of the individual item. The use of that provenance value and the application of the historical presentation. Have you followed those three points?
0: So provenance is like, what are the primary sources that can prove it actually belonged to Lincoln? Right,
3: exactly. And then... Chain of custody, right. Then the next step is taking that item and putting it in a presentation. So in other words, you have an artifact. Let's say we have the blotter here. Okay, we put the blotter on that table. Then on top of that, you're in the cottage, which is a Lincoln residence.
0: So sort of the context of the the item, too. The context of
3: it, exactly. Cool, So now you have, it becomes logarithmic.
0: Alan described how, in doing an appraisal, he would start with the value of the house itself. Then you add to that the value of the tangible property, which means furniture, lamps, that kind of thing, and not only their market value, but their legacy value because they have historic aspects and because they're located at Lincoln's Cottage.
1: We talked about objects quite a bit, But since we're a museum of ideas rather than objects, I was talking with Ellen about how we work to help people realize that what Lincoln did here was a step towards realizing equality of opportunity.
3: And I haven't even got to that. To raise this to the levels that we actually have to get to to evaluate it are the next steps. We're doing the baseline value now. So once we've assigned the baseline value. Now, we have that as the core value. Now, how do we take the next step, which is the intangible legacy step, the responsible step for historical perspective, inspirational perspective? And you could say the cottage is worth $25 million. And I could probably expand on that or in a five-year period, let's say every year you bring in X amount of money. So that's part of the equity value of the cottage. You have tactile material that if you had to sell at auction, you could sell. You have the legacy value for the house, which is in addition to the personal, to the physical property. So when you add all this up, the cottage itself has a higher level.
1: I know it's important to the organization that the cottage be not only a place where people learn about Lincoln's experience, but also think about what they themselves can do to carry Lincoln's ideas forward and contribute to civil discourse. When I mentioned this to Alan, he ran with it.
3: Yeah, and see, you you just did something which just the three of us has just taken A to B to C to D. We've now created an E, so the value of the kindnesses has increased because we have created scenarios which are very adaptable. And useful for the use of the cottage and they are practical for your purpose. So all of a sudden, we can now put into perspective that the cottage has even more value because we didn't even look at the possibility of how it can be used from this perspective. So that's additional value. You see, when you're touching, when you're touching history and you're trying to evaluate it, you can't just say, okay, it's got this ground level, and that's all there is. Okay, it's got ground level in one. It builds and builds and builds. And so eventually, every time you add to the usage of it in whatever philosophical, tactile, um, historical, academic purpose, whatever the usage of it, it adds value to it.
0: So my question is, part of what you're saying now is that the things that Lincoln did here add value to the house, but also all the things we have done or visitors have done here since the house opened to the public have also added to the value of the house. Of course.
3: Yeah, I mean, which is what this is about. I mean, continuity and longevity are, are part of a, uh, you know, are, are part of the evaluation project. Right? It's, a good, it's like business goodwill. I've been in business for 45 years, okay? Right. You know, how much is that worth? Right. Hopefully for me, it's worth a lot because I think I got a good reputation. But you know, you know, this is the goodwill that you've created. Somebody takes this over; they have added value because you've created a value which they get as part of the purchase. So, do you add that to the evaluation of the ha- of the house? Of course, it's a no. You know, I, mean, I hate to use the term a no brainer, but it is exactly. If you don't see it, then you shouldn't be doing the appraisal.
0: Alan also told us that the type of collaborative conversation we had is essential to good appraisal work. It takes appraisal from a theoretical methodology to an applied practice in determining the value of something.
1: We told him about the number from Kevin's report, $9.9 million, and asked how he would adjust it.
3: I would say then I would start at $20 million, okay, because I would have needed their figure. To because, start from? Yeah, you because know, I'm throwing $5 million in. To the house property, which I'm not making the evaluation, so if nine million is the core value, add another five million dollars, and that is just where I would start because I could build this considerably with with a, a a couple months of serious historical perspective. I would give you a list of twenty different ways you could Create a higher visibility if you had the funding behind you.
1: Given that the premise of the insurance report is that it's looking at what it would cost to rebuild the cottage, we wondered what Alan thought. From his perspective, could you rebuild it?
3: No. Building it back up would never be the same because the entire concept of it is it's still in 1865. And you can't go any further. You can't go and change that so if you rebuilt it all you'd be doing is creating a mausoleum
0: which made me feel a little creepy the idea of the building empty of the things that make it what it is because I have had such a strong experience of the presence of this place and of the the spirit of the place that the idea of that being missing but the marble mantle still looking at me as it were was kind of freaking me out I think you and I have both had a more profound experience of the house than that, yeah? Absolutely. All of which is to say, Allen's $25 million encompassed more of the historical legacy of the space, but we still felt like there was something missing. What might be some other ways we could measure the value of the cottage?
1: We went to talk to Julio Bermudez, a professor of architecture at Catholic University and a very dear friend of ours. Julio studies how the architecture of contemplative spaces impacts people, which means he has a lot of practice working to measure and evaluate intangible things. In fact, he worked with us to design a phenomenological study to measure the impact of the cottage experience on the visitor.
0: Right away, when we asked him what the cottage might be worth, he said, for the historical. It's priceless.
4: That's what I would say. It's priceless. And I can articulate why. Well, I mean, one, one interesting way to put it, is like, what is the value of the Fifth Symphony of Beethoven? You know, what is the value of the Parthenon? You know, what is the value of the most precious thing that humanity have created and has given so much joy and beauty and uh, story about who those people were, but also who we are? Because I think when we encounter these amazing buildings, in this case, there is a revelation of who we are. I mean, those of us, and I think the majority of people, are sensitive. They feel, they feel something special. Uh, I think when you go to the cottage, and I think it happened the first time I was there, you feel the presence of not just history of, but of of Lincoln. You have the presence of goodness and ideals and what really this country is all about. You feel, you know, you feel proud to be American. And I think the architecture somehow records this. Julio
1: also spoke to how the experience we've designed at the cottage affects people's interaction with the architecture and with the space.
4: And I think the other aspect of the cottage that always and with the first time we met was all about that there is an architectural quality by, by allowing people to walk through the spaces to to really explore on this by themselves and hearing you know, the, the, the echoes and just being able to touch the materials and basically find your way around, that is just incredible. You know, I think sometimes people pay an entry fee and you are just basically forced to a particular experience that has been preordained for you. And uh, I think it's, at least from my view, it has always been very frustrating because you really are not in, in any freedom to to feel the place. You know, and also the other aspect of the cottage that is also priceless is that they give you the time that you could do these things, so it's not like you're rushing through. Uh, so it's also it takes time to appreciate things. And I think that the other, I think, I think, in a way, you could see the, 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 the whole experience as a be very generous, which is also another way of thinking of, of price, you know, that you afford people from all walks of life, anybody really. First, you have the trust that they will honor that. You know, you don't, you didn't check me out. I could have done anything. You trust whoever comes in. You give them the time and the the assurance that they could experience how they want it. And you offer this. It's a beautiful gesture. So it's a, it's really a giving in the spirit of Lincoln. It's in the spirit of what it ought to be. And I don't know how you put price on that. So to me, there is an aspect to this that enters that because The attitude, the way that you offer this incredible priceless jewel to anybody is because then the experience happened.
0: I was curious about how Julio thought about the relationship between buildings as material things and people's emotions. What kind of things was he finding out in his research? How can a building make you feel something?
4: Well, I think architecture uh, without people doesn't exist. And it, it, it doesn't, I don't want to go into that sort of nihilism here because, of course, you know, if the, the, the tree falls in the forest, it does fall. We do know that. However, to experience the drama of the falling, you know, the, the unique moment, if there is not a human being there, that moment is lost. So when I think of architecture, I never think of an object but I see this if you, think, if you think of a tango of two, a couple dancing, that the man does this move, the woman makes this move, and there is this music going on. And the experience is really both in interaction. You know, the man will have an experience, the woman, but it's this interaction in the, whole, in the whole dance. So when you go to see a building, something like that happens. The building offers itself to you, and you, you accept that invitation and you begin to dance with the, the building. Um, and the building offers its personality, its its, its qualities, its, its gifts, its problems. Some you know, some buildings have issues. You know, they're falling apart. They're, you know. Uh, and then you bring your own you know knowledge, your attitude, your your expectations, your your love, uh, whatever it is that you bring to that. And then in this dance, things begin to happen. And sometimes the dance or the interaction or the experience, usually it's called experience, is such. That is extraordinary. What happened is extraordinary. And, you know, there are cases, which is, I'm writing a book on this, you know, we call Extraordinary Architecture Experiences, where the building literally breaks you down to a point of finding some sort of transcendental connection. You know, what is the connection is to God, or is to your own uh, sense of being, or perhaps is to some sort of ideal, some principle that you feel very convinced, or maybe it's to your homeland. And I'm writing a book on this. I also done neuroscience, as you know, you know what happened in the brain. You know what we found, for instance, when looking at contemplative spaces, and I think you could say that the the college in many ways, in some definitely in some rooms, is very contemplative. What we have uh, found out uh, is that people, in comparison to ordinary architecture, ordinary architecture comparatively to contemplative architecture, what we found is that uh, when people are experiencing these contemplative spaces, all the areas of the brain, which is basically the 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 frontal cortex, you know the the areas where we associate with thought with self with narrat- narratives, you know memory, criticism analysis, all that stuff that we consider who we are are all shut down it's, it's remarkable the, by definition it's called hippofrontality means that again the the frontal cortex is shut down. You are completely, the traditional self is completely gone. However, you haven't been more conscious in your life. You're super conscious. You're super, uh, so in order for you to experience this extraordinary thing, you know, your ego had to be gone. And then you have profound communication with what is. You are in this kind of, in the dance, in the best dance, there is no you. You're just dancing,
1: right? Julio explained why this research matters in the first place.
4: And emotions are really important. Because, you know, I think oftentimes these days, the way that we approach things, architecture for sure, but the arts is through our head, our intellect, trying to understand, to explain, to rationalize, to articulate with words, um, which is all okay and understandable. But we all know, too, that that's not where life is about. We know that life comes through ourselves, through our bodies and our emotions. And although also could be the kind of the lowest expression of humanity, and we know when unfortunately when that happened, also they are highest. And when you are at that level of of you know profound engagement in the profound dance or the interaction, emotions are incredibly um signs of something happening that cannot be articulating words. I mean, you're trying to explain that, you know And you, you know, you're trying, I'm trying But in the end, it's it's called ineffable it's, it, Right You cannot you, you express just, you it can't Yeah, and it's called ineffable That's the word that exists for this It's just it, that which cannot be said Whatever you said, you miss it
0: One of the things I found most impressive about Julio was his ability to talk about the unexplainable and his efforts to measure something that seems impossible to measure.
1: And I keep thinking about how it can be worth different things to different people, none of which is less important than the other, which leads me to think that maybe it's impossible to measure after all. So
4: is
0: it even a useful question?
1: What is the cottage worth?
4: I think it's a great question in the sense that it it allows this uh, meditation, you know this. This conversation, I think, is a is, is a very worthwhile. Uh, and I think in this uh, issue, I think in this w- world in which we are so geared to to think about con- concrete, you know, materialism, because in that we are surrounded by it. Everything has a price, or everything, you know, is is purchasable or can be gotten. I think it's good to be reminded that that's not the case that some things need to be preserved because they are priceless and they are cannot... When they're lost, they're lost. And I think the duty of every generation is to preserve those things that that make us whole, make us one. Uh, and I think that's the great thing about the organization you you, you 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 lead, is that you keep that for all of us. You know, this is what you do. So 100 years from now, or whenever it is, somebody could have this experience we're talking about and we, we realize why we are, why we, I mean, I, as you hear my accent, I mean, I'm, I was not American, born American, but I've always felt, since the moment I, I learned about America, profoundly American. I mean, I get emotional about this, you know, because the values of America, you know, sometimes we lose them, you know, we lose them and we could lose them. And I think you go to that place and you feel them. You know what I mean? You feel them. And it's, it's hard, it's important to keep those, that memory, you know? It's so important to keep them. If we lose that, we lose ourselves. And what's the price of that? You know, there is, there is no, no price. There is no price.
1: I can't lie. We left this conversation with Julio pretty emotional. I got
0: a lot of new numbers in my head from this episode, but in the end, I still marvel. And how a house built for a rich man with all the best materials, but just a house, could have given Lincoln an experience so profound that he rebuilt America, replacing the imperfect freedom from the founding with something more widespread and longer-lasting.
1: We want to encourage you to think about what American values are worth the most to you? and What can you do to preserve them for the future?
0: This episode was produced by me, Joan Cummins, and Callie Hawkins. Music for Q&A was written, performed, and is
1: copyrighted by Clancy Newman. Q&A is possible thanks to generous supporters of President Lincoln's Cottage. To find out how you can support this podcast and other programming, visit www.lincolncottage.org. To the visitor who
0: asked the question behind this episode, thanks for helping us find something beyond measurement. Comments,
1: questions... Write to us at podcast at lincolncottage.org or leave us a review on your podcast app.
0: President Lincoln's Cottage is a home for brave ideas. Stay curious.